If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck. I am Jessica Fuentes. And today we're talking about, well, we're talking about a few things. We're talking about big art, which, um, you know, we've been thinking about what are large scale artworks? What are some of the biggest artworks that we can just think of off the top of our heads? But this whole conversation is grounded around the announcement of Michael Heitzer's City artwork. If you don't know what this is or haven't heard about it or haven't seen all of the news and the huge New York Times profile about it with sweeping drone footage, um, a little bit of information about that first. So Michael Heitzer fairly well-known land artist, has done quite a bit of stuff like in the Nevada desert. Um, This is a project he's been working on since 1972. And I believe it was last week, a bunch of outlets began reporting that it was going to be open to the public finally. Um, This is a piece called City. Uh, It was financed partly by him and partly by backers. Um, It's a Gesamtkunstwerk, which... For all of you art nerds out there, I know whenever we can break out the German, we kind of love it, Um, which means that it's a total artwork. So this is a big, uh, I mean, plateau. It's a big temple-like structure in the Nevada desert. It's a mile and a half long by nearly half a mile wide, Um, and it cost about $40 million estimated to build over 50 years, and it... It looks, at least in the photos and footage and everything that's come out about it, it looks otherworldly and crazy. Um, Jessica, what am I? What am I forgetting? What do people need to know about this in order to ground it? There's, there's no supplement for looking at the photos and videos of it, which we'll link in the reading list for this podcast. But how would you describe it to somebody? Yeah, I guess for me, I, it reminds me of a mixture of. Uh, an ancient work like the pyramids uh, combined with an airport landing strip. (laughs) (laughs) It is monumental and stark. I said it looks otherworldly. I feel like I've seen it look very differently in the videos that have been released about it and the photos that have been released because it almost has, it's one of those things that's so big and so stylized in a way that the videos of it look like they're 3D animations. Like they just, they don't look real because they don't give any accurate sense of scale. I feel like they don't give an accurate sense of color in a lot of ways because this is, this is on earth. It's in the desert. Um, It's, it's a very brown and not 
beige, but it's a very brown and gray artwork because the whole idea is uh, Michael Heitzer has moved this earth, right? That That's his whole deal. Ever since he started doing earthworks, uh, maybe there may have been one before this, but in 1969, he did a piece called Double Negative, also in the Nevada desert, uh, where he displaced 240,000 tons of rock from a mesa in Nevada um, and created this, well, this double negative, this these dash marks, essentially, in the landscape. Um, ever since he's been doing that, he's been about moving Earth and doing these interventions on land. Um, and he's from Nevada, so there could be some of that connection also. However, I think Nevada also just had a bunch of cheap land, probably, when he started buying land in the 70s. Um, the thing that really struck me about this, you know, I mean, the scale and the the art world destination, like, this, this is, I think it's about, oh, three hours or so north of Las Vegas, so, it, you know, it's... It's one of those earthworks that if you want to go to it, you're going to have to make a commitment. It's almost like going to Marfa, right? You're not going to just happen upon this or go to it very easily. You have to make reservations. You can't get to it yourself, yada, yada, yada. But the thing that struck me was uh, this coalition of museums that's going to partner together to care for it or take custodianship of it. It's the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Arkansas, uh, the Glenstone Museum, which is this big, uh, the best way to describe it is probably like a sculpture park, but it's kind of a lot more than that. Um, in Maryland, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA, and the Museum of Modern Art. Um, all of them are partnering together with the Triple Ought Foundation, which Michael Heitzer established to kind of perpetually care for the city. It has an endowment, you know, that whole deal. But I was trying to think if I've ever seen this kind of museum partnership before to care for something. Like, there are other institutions, like uh, Dia takes care of Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty. Um, uh, it also takes care of Walter DeMaria's Lightning Field. Like, there are institutions that have ownership of land art, but I've never seen museums of this caliber come together to be like, oh, we're going to support something. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other examples of this type of coming together to support something. Um, I wonder if it has to do with the age of the artist. Um, he is 77. Um, not that that means by any means that he is at the end of his life, but um, I think, you know, as artists get up in age, they start to think more realistically about the stewardship of their work, especially when, you know, Heiser has spent 50 years on a piece like this. Um, you don't just spend 50 years making something this grand without also creating a plan for how it will continue to be cared for. Um, it is clearly something that will last has the potential to last for uh, lifetimes. And so making sure that there's something set up um, makes a lot of sense to me. And that I could see where these this various coalition of museums um, all have an interest in supporting a project like this. 
yeah, like it makes a lot of sense that it's kind of bi-coastal and very prestigious museums. It also, if you want to get a little insidery about it, it makes sense that these museums are involved because, like, for example, on the Triple Lot Foundation, the foundation he created to support it, um, Michael Govan, who is the director of LACMA, he serves on the board. And Glenn Lowry, who's the director of MoMA, he also serves on the board. So it's kind of like Heitzer has found this group of people who have their own personal investment because they're serving on his board, and then they can also rally their institutional investment behind it. So he's really, I mean, he's really set it up ideally, I would think, perfectly for himself um, going forward, because I kind of can't imagine at this point, of course, I haven't seen this thing in person, but I don't know what kind of maintenance or upkeep this would require. Like, it's in the desert, so how bad is erosion in the northern Nevada desert? Or, like, will will people have to get out there with backhoes and essentially refill or pat down some of this landscape because that's how Heiser made this. It's like an unnatural landscape in the middle of the desert that he made by piling earth. You know, he's all about moving materials, like I said earlier. So I don't know what that's going to entail, but I assume whatever it is, it will cost money. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talk about erosion, but also just thinking about like how these structures shift over time as the land beneath them shifts. Um, if cracks begin to form in different structures, you know, how does that get addressed? So, yeah, I think there there's definitely kind of like the everyday wear and tear of um, of things building up, but then also kind of like long term structural things that could shift. Mm -hmm. And Jessica, what you're talking about is the, uh, so at either end of uh, this artwork, (laughs) um, or at either end of the runway, (laughs) let's say, uh, there are these large, um, I believe, concrete, Jessica, Mm -hmm. um, altar-like buildings. You know, one is uh, like made up of a bunch of triangles that together form a solid box, Um, And another one is very kind of altar and it's like altars, plazas, you know, it's very much um, taking inspiration from the tip, the temples of of prehistory. So because we were thinking about this and because we were thinking about large scale art, um, we started to think about what other art is out there that could be even held up next to the city kind of just as you know people love a, a, the the monikers or they love superlatives around something so what is what is the biggest contemporary artwork that was the question kind of that i wanted to try and get to the bottom to of course we will have missed something so let us know what we missed um but my first impetus was just to kind of reach out and do an informal survey of people that i could easily text and responses that I got were really interesting. Uh, There were people who were thinking about individual sculptures or individual paintings, which kind of makes sense, like Richard Serra's Tilted Ark, which was on view in New York and kind of bisected a public plaza um, and was ultimately taken down because it was a public nuisance. Um, Things like uh, Robert Rauschenberg's quarter-mile-long painting, like, you know, what's the longest painting in the world? Um, 
things like Spiral Jetty came up a couple times because, again, like, it would make sense that land art would be some of the largest art simply because it isn't restricted to, like, a gallery setting or a museum setting. Um, other things that came up, like Ai Weiwei's sunflower installation at the Tate, like, what does that constitute? Or Kara Walker's sugar sculptures, or quite a few people mentioned James Terrell's Roden Crater. Um, a lot of people were like, okay, do the pyramids count? Are those works of art? But uh, the thing that I found really interesting is the more I talked to people about this, the deeper kind of we got into the psychological, philosophical questions of, like, not only what is a work of art, but what constitutes big. <laughs> Which, you know, it's, it's a like a nerdy art thing, but I love that. Um, so someone mentioned Christo and Jean-Claude's Surrounded Islands, where they, uh, it's probably in an art history textbook if you've ever seen one, where they put a bunch of fabric around, uh, a pink fabric around islands. And that was seven miles long but then the question came up someone was like well the water doesn't count the water is just the wall like the water is the wall of the gallery that the work is hung on and that i thought was wonderful and kind of blew my mind because i was like okay yeah so does the water count or is it just the pink fabric that's part of the art well is the water the wall or is the water the canvas that's what i don't know. I almost feel like in it's one of the instances where there isn't a set defined thing, right? It's like it's like the idea that the medium is the message. So like if the water's part of it, right? Doesn't that make all of the water a component of the work? I think so. I, I think, you know, just like when an artist makes a mark on a large white canvas, the canvas is part of it. It's the negative space. It gives context to the mark. It's not just a mark floating out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so for me, I, I think the water is definitely a part of it. What for you constitutes a big artwork? Is it like the number of components that something is comprised of? Is it the is it the weight? Is it, you know, something that's made of one single thing? Is it the amount of materials that the artist physically moved around to make it? Like, what's big? I guess um, when when we first started throwing around this question, I was thinking just very literally about size, um, but also because of my experience in the art world working in museums, I couldn't get past things inside of a museum setting. I couldn't get past, you know, large sculptures that might be on the grounds of museums. Um, but hearing these bigger questions about, you know, do the pyramids count? Yeah, that that is um, an interesting thing to reflect on. Um, I think I struggle a lot with knowing, like, where is that line between art and architecture? Where is that line between art and artifact? Is there a line? Does it matter? Um, and so, yeah, I guess now thinking about big, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about um, height, sprawl, um, just kind of these physical sizes, not necessarily things about components or, um, or the amount of maybe like work that goes into it necessarily. I almost could feel some sort of affinity for the idea that it's the amount of material someone's moving around. <laughs> like, I 
I don't know. It's it's very much kind of like the <laughs> land art imperialistic <laughs> way to think about it. But it's like, you know, you would think of like the pyramids in that regard, or you would think of like Heitzer City because it's it's like he moved the earth, <laughs> you know, in order, and he moved tons of rock in order to make this. So there's an almost it almost seems like it's a little bit of a cop out to go with that definition just because it's easy to justify <laughs> um versus versus like the the largest thing that I feel like I've been able to find is uh Cristo and John Claude's umbrellas which stretched for 30 miles in Japan and the US um, and they actually, they had on their website, um, it said, quote, this Japan-U.S. temporary work of art reflected the similarities and differences in the ways of life and the use of land into inland valleys. So to me, that was them being like, the land is part of it. The land is the canvas. The land isn't the wall that the artworks, the umbrellas, were shoved into. So it's like, I feel like if you're doing it by area... It's like, oh, thir- you know, it's the length of a marathon. So one of the things that I really enjoy and appreciate about Christo and Jean-Claude's work is the attention to environmental care. Um, and that, for me, is a big hesitation with even wanting to see large monumental works that are displacing land and earth Um because it's just something that is a is a personal hangup for me, right? Like um, when I started working at the Dallas Museum of Art and the Center for Creative Connections, the first six months that I worked there, I just couldn't get over how much materials and things our visitors used in the making area, which I loved. People are making things, um, but then what happens to it, right? Um, and then it made me like reflect on these bigger questions about art and all of the art that has ever been made over time and what happens to all of those materials and only a small portion of those things become um, cared for in a museum um, or in a collection somewhere and what happens to all of those materials. So I I think about like land art in that way too. Um, You know, does the benefit of having this artistic creation outweigh the potential damage that is done to the earth? Um, and so for me, like, I really appreciate that Christo and Jean-Claude are very intentional about um, how they approach the land. I mean, you're getting very closer. You're edging up to a subject, which is also just kind of a blatant thing about big art. Like this list that we were thinking of or the, the informal survey that I got from people, like what are the biggest artworks that people could think of? Works by Christo and John Claude, works by James Terrell or his crater, um, Walter De Maria, Rauschenberg. Like, generally speaking, it's a it's a bunch of white dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I mean, who you know, and a lot of this was like who in the seventies and eighties had money or the ability or the leisure of going and buying up a big plot of land or who had institutional support to go do that. Um, and, and I mean, that's, it's very clearly what it is. It's people who wanted to, you know, take ownership of the land and like transform and leave their mark. And 
it was a lot of land art is very much or a lot of this very large scale kind of um art historical canon land art is very much a product of its time yeah and i think those are you know important things for for art viewers to consider as they're as they're interacting with and experiencing these works and I, I wonder how much um, artists who are thinking about taking on things like this spend time reflecting on why, why they want to do this and what does this mean, um, like beyond the artistic creation part of it, right? Like, um, what is the deeper intentionality and um, and is it is it something they should do just because they can do it? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a similar sense of kind of legacy in the installations at like the Chinati Foundation, right? Because Judd could kind of fit a little bit into that sense of like he went to Marfa and just started buying up, buying up land with his own money, with support from the Dia uh, Foundation, um, like, and he wanted to create these spaces where people could experience the art exactly how he uh, felt the art should be experienced. Like there's, there's a reason that on his uh, compound uh, in Marfa, he sealed up the garage doors through which he brought the sculptures in. Like they're never leaving. And that's part of it. You have to go to Marfa to see them because it's how Judd exactly wanted them to be shown. And that's very comparable to me, at least to smithson's amarillo ramp it's like if you want to see amarillo ramp you have to make an appointment and take a journey into the ranch land of amarillo and that's how you're going to see it in marfa if you want to see those donald judd sculptures you have to go to marfa make an appointment and see them exactly how they're supposed to be so it's like while judd wasn't a land artist he had a lot of the ethos and the mindset of one and again, look at the period that he comes out of, like it fits in with everyone else. So Jessica, you initially uh, said that you were thinking about artworks that were located in a museum when you started thinking about this uh, idea. And I did too. I was thinking about Richard Serra uh, artworks that I've seen in galleries and museums. I was thinking about Chris Burden's work, um, which often ended up being large work placed inside an institution. Um but I also thought about the museum that had the largest ratio of super big objects. And of course, this, I mean, you know, I don't mean super big in relation to Michael Heitzer's city. I mean super big in relation to, like, a painting that you see in a normal museum. And for me, that title 100% goes to the Broad in L.A., Um I went to that museum probably in, I think it was about 2018, and I hadn't seen that much big art in one place. You know, I'm talking paintings that are 50 feet long, sculptures that are 20 feet tall. Like, it was kind of breathtaking the amount of <laughs> very large art that they had crammed in. Yeah. Um, and I think 
for me here locally, just thinking about DFW, like my mind goes to the modern, the Dallas Contemporary and the DMA as places that tend to have these much larger exhibition spaces um, that can hold much larger pieces. Um, And it is a really different kind of experience than going into a smaller, more intimate space um, or a space where there's just not the possibility to have that amount of large works on view at one single time. Another artist that I thought about as I was trying to think of large pieces was Nobuo Tsukine, um, a Japanese artist, sculptor, land artist, um, who the Rachofsky Warehouse has in their collection. Um, And his work came to mind because he may be one of the kind of first experiences I had early on with this kind of um, land art and displacement. And it really struck me as a special experience because um, the work, when I first saw it, and I I think still now I would assume, um, is at the Wachowski house. So it's part of um, their landscape at their house. Um, And it just seemed so unbelievable to me that a person (laughs) uh, could have this type of art at their home. Um, The piece in particular that I'm thinking about is called Faye's Mother Earth, where the artist basically removed a cylinder of earth from the ground, repositioned it um, next to the hole that it created, and then cement uh, was put in to hold the hole and also to hold the earth removed from the hole. Um, So what you see is a giant cylinder hole in the ground um, lined in cement and then a giant cement-looking object next to the hole that it has been removed from that's really interesting and what's the what's the scale of it as far as scale um the cylinder piece is a little over eight feet tall so standing next to it it is a little bit looming right um and coming upon a hole that's eight feet deep is also a little intimidating that's that's really interesting and i mean whenever whenever i have the wonderful chance to see someone's collection that has interventions in their home or land art in their home or you know that kind of thing it's it's a whole other it's a whole other level of collecting that kind of art also because it's i mean it can't ever be moved or it wouldn't be the same piece so it's very much like in some ways it's very much if you collect that kind of work it's very much collecting it for yourself you know, it's there's probably a sense of collecting it for pedigree and everything, too, or being able to say that you have that type of work. But, like, good luck trying to donate that to a museum or something, though. You have to donate the property itself, right? It's it's kind of like it has at least the length of your lifetime, and it may or may not live beyond. Yeah, and, you know, definitely at the time, uh, the Wachowski's collection was being shown at their house and on their property. Um, Now, of course, they have the warehouse, um, but it does make you wonder, like, what is what is the plan for the property of the house in the future? Um, Will it remain in family hands or will it be donated? Um, 
like their collection will be um, to other institutions. Yeah, definitely. Or turn into an institution itself. Or turn into an institution itself. Yeah. Well, and with that, we're going to wrap up for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to see the drone footage of Michael Heitzer's city, we'll link the New York Times article in the reading list. Um, I don't know about you, Jessica, but, you know, things considered, I will be very excited to go to the city <laughs> once, uh, once, once it finally opens, which is happening rather soon. And with that, we're wrapping up. Uh, if you want to go see some art, you can take a look at our website, see what event listings are upcoming in your region. And that's it. It's summer. Stay cool, stay dry, and go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.